Chapter 9 of First on the Moon by Jeff Sutton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. There is no dawn on the moon, no dusk, no atmosphere to catch and spread the light of the sun. When the lunar night ends, a night two earth weeks long, the sun simply pops over the horizon and brings its intolerable heat. But the sky remains black, black and sprinkled with stars agleam with a light unknown on earth. At night the temperature is 250 degrees below zero. By day it is the heat of boiling water. Yet the sun is but an intense circle of white aloft in an igrescent sky. It was a world such as Craig had scarcely dreamed of, alien, hostile, fantastic in its architecture, a bizarre world spawned by a nature in revolt. Craig stopped to adjust the temperature control of his suit. He started to mop his brow before he remembered the helmet. Larkwell saw the gesture, and behind his thick faceplate, his lips wrinkled in a grin. Go on, scratch it, he challenged. This moon's going to take a lot of getting used to. Craig swept his eyes over the bleak plain and they send four men to conquer this. It ain't conquered yet, Larkwell spat. Craig's answer was a sober reflection. No, it isn't, he said quietly. He contemplated the soot-filled sky, its magic lanterns, then looked down again at the plain. Let's get moving. It was dawn, dawn in the sense that the sun had climbed above the horizon. The landing had been planned for sunup, the line which divided night from day, to give them the benefit of a two-week day before another instantaneous onslaught of night. They moved slowly across the ashy floor of the crater, occasionally circling small knolls or jagged rock outcroppings. Despite the cumbersome suits and the burden of the extra oxygen cylinder each carried, they made good time. Craig led the way with Larkwell close behind, threading his way toward the spot where the enemy rocket had fallen from the sky. They had to stop several times to rest and regulate their temperature controls. Despite the protective garments, they were soon sweating and panting, gasping for breath with a feeling of suffocation. Craig felt the water trickling down his body in rivulets and began to itch, a sensation that was almost a pain. It's not going to be a picnic, Larkwell complained. His voice sounded exhausted in the earphones. Craig grunted without answering. His feet plowed up little spurts of dust, which fell as quickly as they rose. Like water, dropping, he thought. He wondered how long they would be able to endure the heat. Could they possibly adapt their bodies to such an environment? What of the cold of night? The questions bothered him. He tried to visualize what it would be like to plunge from boiling day to the bitterly cold night within the space of moments. Would they be able to take it? He grinned to himself. They'd find out. At the next halt, they looked back at the Aztec. We don't seem to be getting anywhere, Larkwell observed. Greg contemplated the rocket. He was right. The ship seemed almost as large and clear as ever. Your eyes trick you, he said. It's just another thing we'll have to get used to. 
he let his eyes linger on the plain. It was washed with a brilliant light, which even their glare shields didn't diminish. Each rock, each outcrop, cast long black shadows, black silhouettes against the white ash. There were no grays, no intermediate shades. Everything was either black or white. His eyes began to ache, and he turned them from the scene. He nodded at Larkwell and resumed his trek. He was trudging head down when he suddenly stopped. A chasm yawned at his feet. Mighty wide, Larkwell observed, coming up. Yeah, said Craig indecisively. The rift was about twenty feet wide, its bottom lost in black shadows. Larkwell studied the chasm carefully. Might just be the rill we need for an airlock. If it's not too deep, he added. He picked up a boulder and dropped it over the edge, waiting expectantly. Craig chuckled. The construction man had forgotten that sound couldn't be transmitted through a vacuum. Larkwell caught the laugh in his earphones and smiled weakly. He said sheepishly, something else to learn. We've got plenty to learn. Craig looked both ways. To the right, the chasm seemed to narrow, and although he wasn't sure, end. Let's try it, he suggested. Larkwell nodded agreement. They trudged along the edge of the fissure, walking slowly to conserve their energy. The plain became more uneven. Small outcroppings of black glassy rock punctured the ash, becoming more numerous as they progressed. Occasional saw-toothed needles pierced the sky. Several times they stopped and looked back at the Aztec. It was a black cylinder, smaller yet seemingly close. Craig's guess was right. The chasm narrowed abruptly and terminated at the base of a small knoll. Both rockets were now hidden by intervening rocks. He hesitated before striking out, keeping backbone ridge to his right. The ground became progressively more uneven. They trudged onward for over a mile before he caught sight of the Aztec again. He paused, with a feeling something was wrong. Larkwell put it into words. Lost. Not lost, but off course. Craig took a moment to get his bearings and then struck out again, thinking their oxygen supply couldn't stand many of these mistakes. How you doing, Skipper? Craig gave a start before remembering that Prochaska and Nagel were cut in to their intercom. Lousy, he told them. He gave a brief rundown. Just happened to think that I could help guide you. I'll work you with the scope, Porcheska said. Of course, Craig exclaimed, wondering why they hadn't thought of it before. One thing was certain. They'd have to start remembering a lot of things. Thereafter, they checked with Porcheska every few minutes. The ground constantly changed as they progressed. One moment it was level, dusty with ash, the next it was broken by low rocky ridges and interlacing chasms. Minutes extended into seeming hours, and they had to stop for rest from time to time. Craig was leading the way across a small ravine when Larkwell's voice brought him up short. Commander, we're forgetting something. What? Rad counters. Mine's whispering a tune I didn't like. 
Not a thing to worry about, Crag assured him. The raw ores aren't that potent. Nevertheless, he unhooked his counter and studied it. Larkwell was right. They were on hot ground, but the count was low. Won't bother us a bit, he affirmed cheerfully. Larkwell's answer was a grunt. Craig checked the instrument several times, thinking that before long, when they were settled, they would mark off the boundaries of the load. Gotch would want that. The count rose slightly. Once he caught Larkwell nervously consulting his meter. Clearly the construction boss wasn't too happy over their position. Craig wanted to tell him that he had been reading too many Sunday supplements, but he didn't. Porcheska broke in. You're getting close. His voice was a faint whisper over the phones. Maybe you'd better make a cautious approach. Craig remembered the fate of Drone Abel and silently agreed. Thereafter, he kept his eyes peeled. They climbed a small knoll and saw a bandit. He abruptly halted, waited until Larkwell reached his side. The rocket lay at the base of the slope, which fell away before them. It was careened at a crazy angle, with its base crumpled. A wide cleft, running halfway to its nose, was visible. Craig studied the rocket carefully. Might still be oxygen in the space cabin, he ventured finally. The break in the hull might not reach that far. It does, Larkwell corrected. His eyes, trained in construction work, had noted small cracks in the metal extending up alongside the hatch. No survivors in there, he grunted. Craig said thoughtfully, might be, if they had on their pressure suits, and they would have, he added. He hesitated before striking across the clearing, then began moving down the slope. Larkwell followed slowly. As he neared the rocket, Craig saw that it lacked any type of failing device to absorb the landing impact. That, at least, had been one secret kept, he thought. He was wondering how to get into the space cabin when Larkwell solved the problem. He drew a thin hemp line from a leg pocket and began uncoiling it. Craig smiled approval. Never without one in the construction business, he explained. He studied Bandit. Maybe I can hook it over the top of that busted tail fin, then work my way up the break in the hull. Let me try, Craig offered. The climb to look hazardous. This is my province, Larkwell snorted. He ran his eye over the ship before casting the line. He looked surprised when it shot high above the intended target point. Keep forgetting the low gravity, he apologized. He tried again. On the third throw, he hooked the line over the torn tail fin. He rubbed his hands against his suit, then started upward, climbing clumsily, each movement exaggerated by the bulky suit. He progressed slowly, testing each step. Craig held his breath. Larkwell gripped the line, with his body swung outward. His feet planted against the vertical metal, reminding Craig of a human fly. He stopped to rest just below the level of the space cabin. Thought a man was supposed to be able to jump thirty feet on the moon, he panted. You can, if you peel those duds off, Craig replied cheerfully. He ran his eye over the break, noting the splintered metal. 
Be careful of your suit. Larkwell didn't answer. He was busy again, trying to pull his body upward, using the break in the hull to obtain finger grips. Only the moon's low gravity allowed him to perform what looked like an impossible task. He finally reached a point alongside the hatch and paused, breathing heavily. He rested a moment, then carefully inserted his hand into the break in the hull. After a moment he withdrew it, and fumbled in his leg pocket, withdrawing a switchblade knife. Gotta cut through the lining, he explained. He worked the knife around inside the break for several minutes, then closed the blade and reinserted his hand, feeling around until he located the lock bar. He tugged. It didn't give. He braced his body and exerted all of his strength. This time it moved. He rested a moment, then turned his attention to the remaining dog locks. In short time, he had the hatch open. Carefully then, he pulled his body across to the black rectangle and disappeared inside. See anything? Craig shifted his feet restlessly. Dead men. Larkwell's voice sounded relieved over the phones. Smashed faceplates. There was a long moment of silence. Craig waited impatiently. Just a second, he finally reported. Looks like a live one. There was another interval of silence while Craig stewed. Finally, he appeared in the opening with a hemp ladder. Knew they had to have some way of getting out of this trap, he announced triumphantly. He knelt and secured one end to the hatch combing and let the other end drop to the ground. Craig climbed to meet him. Larkwell extended a hand and helped him through the hatch. One glance at the interior of the cabin told him that any life left was little short of a miracle. The man in the pilot's seat lay with his faceplate smashed against the instrument panel. The top of his fiberglass helmet had shattered, and the top of his head was a bloody mess. A second crewman was sprawled over the communication console with his face smashed into the radar scope. His suit had been ripped from shoulder to waist, and one leg was twisted at a crazy angle. Craig turned his eyes away. Here, Larkwell grunted. He was bent over the third and last crewman, who had been strapped in a bucket seat immediately behind the pilot. Craig moved to his side and looked down at the recumbent figure. The man's suit seemed to have withstood the terrible impact. His helmet looked intact, and his faceplate was clouded. Larkwell nodded affirmatively. Breathing, he said. Craig knelt and checked the unconscious man as best he could before finally getting back to his feet. It's going to be a hell of a job getting him back. Larkwell's eyes opened with surprise. You mean we're going to lug that bastard back to the Aztec? We are. Larkwell didn't reply. Craig loosened the unconscious man from his harnessings. Larkwell watched for a while before stooping to help. When the last straps were free, they pulled him close to the edge of the hatch opening. Craig made a mental inventory of the cabin, while Larkwell unscrewed two metal strips from a bulkhead and laced straps from the safety harnessing between them, making a crude stretcher. Craig opened a narrow panel built into the rear bulkhead, 
and involuntarily whistled into his lip mic. It contained two short-barreled automatic rifles and a supply of ammunition. Larkwell eyed the arms speculatively. Looks like they expected good hunting, he observed. Yeah, Craig grimly agreed. He slammed the metal panel shut and looked distastefully at the unconscious man. I've a damn good notion to leave him here. That's what I was thinking. Craig debated and finally shrugged his shoulders. Guess we're elected as angels of mercy. Well, let's go. Yeah, Florence Nightingale Larkwell, the construction boss spat. He looped the line under the unconscious man's arms and rolled him to the brink of the opening. Ought to shove him out and let him bounce a while, he growled. Craig didn't answer. He ran the other end of the line around a metal stanchion and signaled Larkwell to edge the inert figure through the hatch. Craig let the line out slowly until it became slack. Larkwell straightened up and leaned against the hatch combing with a foolish look on his face. Craig took one look at his gapping expression. Oxygen, he snapped. Larkwell looked blank. He seized the extra cylinder from his belt and hooked it into Larkwell's suit, turning the valve. Larkwell started to sway and almost fell through the hatch combing before Craig managed to pull him to safety. Within moments, comprehension dawned on Larkwell's face. Craig quickly checked his own oxygen. It was low, too low. The time they had lost, taking the wrong route, the time taken to open Bandit's hatch, had upset Nagel's oxygen calculations. It was something else to remember in the future. He switched cylinders, then made a rapid calculation. It was evident that they couldn't carry the injured man back with the amount of oxygen remaining. He got on the interphones and outlined the problem to Nagel. Try one of Bandit's cylinders, he suggested. They just might fit. No go. I've already looked them over. He kicked the problem around in his mind. Here's the routine, he told him. You start out to meet us with a couple of extra cylinders. We'll take along a couple of Bandit spares to last this critter until you can modify the valves of his suit to fit our equipment. Porcheska can guide the works, okay? Roger, Porcheska cut in. Nagel gave an affirmative grunt. Craig lowered two of Bandit's cylinders and the stretcher to the floor of the crater, then took a last look around the cabin. Gotch, knew, would ask him a thousand technical questions regarding the rocket's construction, equipment, and provisioning. He filed the mental picture away for later analysis and turned to Larkwell. Let's go. They descended to the plane and rolled the unconscious crewman onto the stretcher. Craig grunted as he hoisted his end. It wasn't going to be easy. The return trip proved a nightmare. Despite the moon's low surface gravity, one-sixth out of Earth, the stretcher seemed an intolerable weight pulling at their arms. They trudged slowly toward the Aztec, with Craig in the lead, their feet kicking up little fountains of dust. Before they had gone half a mile, they were sweating profusely, and their arms and shoulders ached under their burden. Larkwell 
walked silently, steadily, but his breath was becoming a hoarse pant in Craig's earphones. The thought came to Craig that they wouldn't make it if, by any chance, Nagel failed to meet them. But he can't fail, not with Porcheska guiding them, he thought. They reached the end of the rill and stopped to rest. Craig checked his oxygen meter. Not good. Not good at all. But he didn't say anything to Larkwell. The construction boss swung his eyes morosely over the plane and cursed. Nine planets and thirty-one satellites in the solar system. And we had to pick this dog, he grumbled. Gotch must be nearsighted. Craig sighed and picked up his end of the stretcher. When Larkwell had followed suit, they resumed their trek. They were moving around the base of a small knoll when Larkwell's foot struck a pothole in the ash and he stumbled. He dropped the end of the stretcher in trying to regain his balance. It struck hard against the ground, transmitting the jolt to Craig's aching shoulders. He lowered his end of the stretcher, fearful the blow had damaged the injured man's helmet. Larkwell watched unsympathetically while he examined it. Won't make much difference, he said. Craig managed a weak grin. Remember, we're angels of mercy. Yeah, carrying Lucifer. The helmet proved intact. Craig sighed and signaled to move on. They hoisted the stretcher and resumed their slow trek toward the Aztec. Craig's body itched from perspiration. His face was hot, flushed, and his heart thudded in his ears. Larkwell's breathing became a harsh rasp in the interphones. Occasionally Prochaska checked their progress. Craig thought Nagel was making damn poor time. He looked at his oxygen meter several times, finally beginning to worry. Larkwell put his fears into words. We'd better drop this character and light out for the Aztec, he growled. We're not going to make it this way. Nagel should reach us soon. Soon won't be soon enough. Nagel, get on the ball. Craig snapped curtly into the interphones. Moving right along, the oxygen man's voice was a flat, imperturbed twang. Craig fought to keep his temper under control. Nagel's calm was maddening, but it was their necks that were in danger. He repressed his anger, wondering again at the wisdom of trying to save the enemy crewman, if he lived. In short time, Larkwell was grumbling again. He was on the point of telling him to shut up when Nagel appeared in the distance. He was moving slowly, stooped under the weight of the spare oxygen cylinders. He appeared somewhat like an ungainly robot, moving with mechanical steps. The movements of a machine, rather than a man. Craig kept his eyes on him. Nagel never faltered, never changed pace. His figure grew steadily nearer, a dark mechanical blob against the gray ash. Craig suddenly realized that Nagel wasn't stalling. He simply lacked the strength for what was expected of him. Somehow, the knowledge added to his despair. They met a short time later. Nagel dropped his burden in the ash and squirmed to straighten his body. He looked curiously at the figure in the stretcher, then at Craig. 
Doesn't make much sense to me, he said critically. Where are we going to get the oxygen to keep this bird alive? That's my worry, Craig snapped shortly. Seems to me it's mine, Nagel pointed out. I'm the oxygen man. Craig probed the voice for defiance. There was none. Nagel was merely stating a fact, an honest worry. His temper was subsiding when Larkwell spoke. He's right. This bird's a parasite. We ought to heave him in the rill. Hell, we've got worries enough without. Knock it off, Craig snarled harshly. There was a short silence during which the others looked defiantly at him. Stop the bickering and let's get going, Craig ordered. He felt on the verge of an explosion, wanted to lash out. Take it easy, he told himself. With fresh oxygen and three men, the remainder of the trip was easier. Porcheska was waiting for them. He helped haul the bandit crewmen to the safety of the space cabin. When it was pressurized, they removed their suits, and Craig began to strip the heavy space garments from the injured man's body. He finished and stepped back, letting him lie on the deck. They stood in a tight half-circle, silently studying the inert figure. It was that of an extremely short man, about five feet, Craig judged, and thin, a thinness without emaciation. His face was pale, haggard, and, like the Aztec crewman's, covered with stubby beard. He appeared in his late thirties or early forties, but Craig surmised he was much younger. His chest rose and fell irregularly, and his breathing was harsh. Craig knelt and checked his pulse. It was shallow, fast. I don't know. He got to his feet. He may have internal injuries, or just a bad concussion. To hell with him, spat Larkwell. Porcheska said, he'll either live or die. In either case, there's not much we can do about it. His voice wasn't callous. Just matter of fact. Craig nodded agreement. The chief turned his back. Craig was brooding over the possible complications of having an enemy in their midst when his nostrils caught a familiar whiff. He turned, startled. The chief was holding a pot of coffee. I did smuggle one small helping, he confessed. Craig looked thoughtfully at the pot. I should cite you for a court-martial. However, he reached for the cup the chief was extending. They drank the coffee slowly, savoring each drop, while Larkwell outlined their next step. It was one Craig had been worrying about. As you know, the plans call for living in the Aztec until we can get a sheltered airlock into operation, Larkwell explained. To do that, we gotta lower this baby to the horizontal so I can loosen the afterburner section and clear out the gunk. Then we can get the prime airlock installed and working. That should give us ample quarters until we can build the permanent lock, maybe in that rill we passed. We've got to rush that, Nagel cut in, right now. We lose total cabin pressure every time we stir out of this trap. We can't keep it up for long. Craig nodded. Nagel was right. The airlock had to be the first order of business. The plans called for just such a move, and accordingly the rocket had been designed with such a conversion in mind. Only it had been planned as a short-term stopgap, 
one to be used only until a below-surface airlock could be constructed. Now that Drone Abel had been lost... Golly, what will we do with all the room? Prochaska broke in humorously. He flicked his eyes around the cabin. Just imagine, we'll be able to sleep stretched out instead of doubled up in a bucket seat. Larkwell took up the conversation, and they listened while he outlined the step-by-step -step procedure. It was his show, and they gave him full stage. He suggested they might be able to use one of Aztec's now useless servo motors in the task. When he finished, Craig glanced down at the bandit crewman. Pale blue eyes stared back at him, ice blue, calm, yet tinged with mockery. They exchanged a long look. Feel better? Craig finally asked, wondering if by any chance he spoke English. Yes, thank you. The voice held the barest suggestion of an accent. We brought you to our ship, Craig stopped, wondering how to proceed. After all, the man was an enemy, a dangerous one at that. So I see, the voice was laconic. Why? We're human, snapped Craig brutally. The pale blue eyes regarded him intently. I'm Adam Craig, Commander, he added. The bandit crewman tried to push himself up on his elbows. His face blanched, and he fell back. I seem to be a trifle weak, he apologized. He looked at the circle of faces before his eyes settled back on Craig. My name is Richter, Otto Richter. Porcheska said, That's a German name. I am German. On an Iron Curtain rocket, Nagel asked sarcastically, Richter gave the Oxygen Man a long, cool look. That seems to be the case, he said finally. The group fell silent. It was Craig's move. He hesitated. When he spoke, his tone was decisive. We're stuck with you. For the time being, you may regard yourself as confined. You will not be allowed any freedom until we decide what to do with you. I understand. And as soon as we modify the valves on your suit to fit our cylinders, we're going to move you outside. He instructed Nagel to get busy on the valves, then turned to Larkwell. Let's get along with lowering this baby. End of chapter 9